Thank you, Jess. Uh, you are going to love this series and you need to uh, bring your friends because they're going to love it as well. For those of you who are not sure, maybe you're visiting this morning and thinking, what, so what exactly is the series? Let me just give you a picture of what the series is like and let you know that you can get your own copy if, if you'd like to this morning because I brought some with me. So the series is a 10-part uh, DVD series. Uh, now, my son is into IT and we, when we were creating this series, they said, uh, so where, where are you going? how are you going in the series, Dad? I said, we're just getting the CDs burnt. And Tim said, seriously, Dad, does anybody have a DVD player? Well, apparently they do. Uh, but they can, you can also stream it, stream it. So if you want to, uh, you can stream uh, it off the website through Vimeo, uh, but you can get a, a DVD. So it's a 10-part series, uh, 28 minutes. It's shown globally uh, on the cable Christian television around the world, but the greatest use, the reason that we produce this, is that local churches like you can do exactly what you're doing here. This is our heart. It's not like this is produced for television and our church can use it. Why do we want it on television? Because more people will hear about it and see it and use it in their local church. There's actually a discussion guide as well. Remember pen and paper? Remember that? Uh, novel concept, pen and paper. Uh, there is also an app. So if you go to uh, Google Play uh, iTunes, you can actually get the, the Jesus the Game Changer app completely for free, totally free, and it's the discussion guide. And it's just a discussion guide. But as well as that, there's actually um, uh, backgrounds to all the guests. We don't introduce the guests on the series. So if you want to get the free app and use it in your small group, prove that you're, uh, you're hip and up to date. Uh, whip out your smartphone, your tablet, and you can use the app. Uh, the other thing we, we have as well, and this is the world's largest evangelistic tract. It won't fit, fit in your pocket. This is designed just to introduce Jesus the Game Changer to a wide group of people. Uh, when you get a look at this, it's all my wife's photos. So Jane's photos. Fabulous photographer, and it's basically the content of the series shifted and written into a book, and then it's a coffee table book. Uh, Baptist, Baptist Retirement Villages and Anglicare in New South Wales have just bought uh, all these to put right across all of their institutions. If you have uh, doctor surgery, if you have some place even at your home that you want just to leave it lying around so people can look, look at it, another opportunity to introduce people to the fact that Jesus is a game changer. And those, I've got a few copies today, so if you want to get a hold of those, that could be helpful. What, let me finish, fill out what I was saying to Steve. There's two kind of major things that influenced our bringing together of this series. One was books like Vishal Mangalwadi's book, the book that made your world, John Ortberg's book, Who Is This Man? You probably haven't heard of either of those books, but they, they're kind of like a written version of what we've done in the series. There's more and more people that are writing about the influence of Jesus and what it, what it does to the kind of foundational values of our society. There's a guy called Alfred North Whitehead. With, even if you weren't very smart, that makes you sound smart, doesn't it? Alfred North Whitehead. He's a, a kind of a philosopher, mathematician from the early uh, 20th century from the UK. And he wrote that any particular period of time, what we tend to do is we, we de debate ideas that are in play at that particular period of time. And that could be now, it could be back then. He said, what we never debate is the foundational values of society that only give us a certain number of ideas to debate. His point is that every Western society, every society, but Western society, it, it stands on, is based on a foundation of a bunch of different values. One of the questions we need to ask ourselves is where those values come from. And ideas have influence. One of the ideas that's gaining influence in Western nations like Australia, or UK, New Zealand, Canada, or America, there's an idea that's gaining influence in our society which says, 
you know, at one time, Christian faith was quite a foundational idea that people accepted. They may not have believed it, but they accepted it. Then probably in the 60s, starting at the 60s through to the 90s, there was this sense that religion was a bit irrelevant, you know, kind of a bit harmless, but a bit irrelevant. And we've moved on from religion in those old times. We've moved from that time. And now, especially in the commentariat and the sort of cultural elites of our society, they believe that religion is now a dangerous idea. It's a dangerous concept. And what do you do with dangerous ideas and dangerous concepts? You pull them out of the public square because they'll do people damage. So the public square of the school, the public square of the university, the public square of media, politics, the arts. The concept is, if you want to be a believer, if you want to follow Jesus, do that in your own time, in your own house. But don't take it to the public square. And here's this concept that we need to pull faith, religion, belief, Christianity out of the public square. And yet what we want people to understand in this series is that the foundational values that built the public square on which our societies came actually come from the life teaching of Jesus Paul, the early church through the centuries. Some of you will think, boy, that's a big stretch, Carl. If you think that's because you haven't read a lot. Interesting thing is, did you know that yesterday was Karl Marx's 200th birthday? And there's all sorts of uh, kind of ways of looking at Karl Marx. Marx, Marxism, cultural Marxism, socialism is actually gaining currency again in our community, which is kind of odd. Now, you'll be thinking, well, you know, Mark said a whole bunch of great things about, uh, you know, e- equality and, and the spread of, of wealth across many people. Let me read you a quote. I'm going to quote this book twice. The reason I have the book, not a photocopy, is because I haven't actually finished it yet. That's my uh, boarding pass from the plane. I haven't actually finished it. Here's Jordan Peterson. He's somewhat controversial. 12 Rules for Life. Uh, uh, interesting book worth reading. Um, he's not a Christian. That's really important. He's not a Christian for something else I want to say later. Here's what he says about Marx. He said, when Marxism was put into practice in the Soviet Union, China, Vietnam, Cambodia, and elsewhere, economic resources were brutally redistributed. Private property was eliminated and rural people forcibly collectivized. The result, tens of millions of people died. Potentially up to 130 million people died. Now, there are those who will say, well, you know, that, that's because those people didn't do what Marx actually said and that was a bad use of Marxism. Here's, here's the facts. The ideas that Marx, uh, that Marx wrote about, written up in the Communist Manifesto, which says that when you go into a country, if people don't voluntarily give up what they own to be redistributed, the government will forcibly take it from you. To quote Peterson in an interview, and the bodies stack up. Ideas have results. Ideas put into practice have outcomes. And one of the questions we need to ask ourselves, if that, if that I think, others disagree and I'm, I'm, I recognise that, but if that's the outcome of the ideas of Marx, the bodies stack up. What is the outcome of the life and teaching of Jesus? What do we experience now of the life and teaching of Jesus? And there are many people who tell you the church has done some bad things, and it has. No institution actually fully represents the ideas that push it, as some would say about Marx. And yet what Jesus leaves us today 
is quite remarkable. And we're going to look through that. You're going to look through that as the series. But I want to introduce you to some of those ideas this morning. Can you, Jess, can you grab my Bible? I'm going to lead it later. Um, that would be great. I've already got to get a new one. This thing's almost falling apart, which is probably a good sign, isn't it, really? Uh, what, what are some of the ideas that, that you'll be looking at? And I want to look at just a couple this morning. First, that all people are created equal. That is an idea that changed the world. The idea that, now, whether we live that out, that's another question. Let, let me put that on one side. Whether we actually allow equality and, and express equality fully, whether we can actually do that is another question. Whether we believe it, you walk down the, the mall in Launceston this afternoon and bump into strangers and stop and talk to them. Probably don't do it, it's socially unacceptable. But if you did, and you asked everybody you bumped into, do you believe that all people are equal? I think, here's my prophetic word, you'll find very hard to find somebody that doesn't believe that. Where did that idea come from? We tend to think that's what everybody has always thought. That's what the world has always thought. You basically pop out of the womb and think that's the first thought you have. Everybody's created equal. That hasn't always been true, and it's not true now across the world. If you go into Greco-Roman times and you were to read someone like Aristotle, that great thinker, uh, he actually believed in natural inequality, that the world was created with people that were unequal to others, and that's okay. He believed in a whole slave class who was there to serve the others in, 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 in the community. He believed that slaves were like living tools, something that you owned, and it was like a living tool that you owned. And nobody kind of disagreed with that. Where did the idea that all people are created equal come from? For instance, if you don't believe in God, and you don't believe in the divine, and you don't believe in creation, if you believe in, in the whole evolutionary process, that does not give you equality of people. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that people who believe in evolution don't believe in equality. You got me? I'm not saying that. But if you followed the logic of survival of the fittest, then you would actually kind of end up with a logic that says that well, people are unequal. And there are those that are written about that. What gives equality? The fact that we believe that the spark of God is in every person. Let me, let me quote two authors who are not Christian authors who look back in history and see that this came from the person of Jesus. The first is actually Peterson himself. Uh, early on in his book, he actually comments on this. Here's what he says. Christianity made the explicit and surprising claim that even the lowliest person had rights, genuine rights, and that sovereign and state were morally charged at a fundamental level to recognise those rights. Everybody is worth the same. Why? Because they have the spark of God within them. That's what gives you equality of all people. And whether you're a disabled child or a billionaire, you have the same spark of rights. You may have, the op may have different ability to influence, but you are worth the same. Another writer who we wanted to interview, but we didn't because he was sick when we were in London, there's a guy called Larry Seedentop. He, he taught at Nebel College in Oxford for several decades. He wrote a book called Inventing the Individual. It's not a religious book. It's a work of academia, academia and a work of history. And here is Seedentop here is trying to look at this idea of where did the concept of the individual and the individual matter coming from. Here's a quote from the book. 
Christianity changed the ground of human identity by emphasising the moral equality of humans quite apart from any social roles they might uh, occupy. I love this bit of the quote. Christianity changed the name of the game. We didn't get the, the, the name of the series from that, but he, he's uh, ripping off our series. Uh, here's, here's what he's saying. When Paul was writing to the church at Galatia and he was writing to the Galatian church, here's what Paul said. Um, so uh, he, he talks about there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ. Those divisions were foundational divisions of a society, as I said, that Aristotle talked about and others, that believed that people were unequal. And Paul is taking the great inequalities and saying, no, we're all worth the same. We are worth the same in Christ. That changed the world. That gave us the foundation for democracy. That shifted the ground underneath society over the centuries. What about the, the concept of care? Yeah, um, uh, there's a great article by Tom Holland. I don't have the time to go into the whole article. He's a, a BBC creator of documentaries. He's written a number of uh, books about the Greco-Roman world and he loved the Greco-Roman world until just recently, and in this article, there's an article I want to quote that's only just been out in the last two years, just recently looked at the Greco-Roman world and saw a sense of callousness that he'd never noticed before. It was just an awful callous place where nobody seemed to care about the individual. I mean, take this for instance. What about the gladiatorial events? Do you watch Gladiator when Russell Crowe was young and fit looking? <laughs> Saw him recently. It's, it's, that's been a while ago, wasn't it? <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, we, I, I don't know about you, but I, I just loved the Gladiator movie. What a great movie. It was a lot of, you know, it's just great to engage in it, wonderful story. And we kind of we like it. Think about this though. Here is a class of people, several thousand of them, whose only reason to exist in the world at all was to walk into an arena in front of a cheering and jeering crowd and kill each other to death. I mean, we, I guess kill each other to death is a bit of a tautology, isn't it, really? Can't kill each other to any, any, any other way, but let's move on. Here's, think about it. And nobody's watching it, except actually it was one person, but nobody's watching it going, is that a good idea? Should we do this? They loved it. Even after the Roman Empire became Christian in some sort of sense, that, that, that value of life still wasn't there. And one of the things that Tom Holland talked about was not just the callousness of the gladiatorial games that nobody seemed to notice, was that caring for the person who was in any sort of, uh, of need, nobody seemed to do it. In fact, uh, another guy, again, I'm trying to give you some material that you won't see in the series. Edwin Judge is an ancient historian from Macquarie University in Sydney, and Edwin Judge has said this, Classical philosophers regarded mercy and pity, so that's classical philosophers of the Greco-Roman time, they regarded mercy and pity as pathological emotions, defects of character that ought to be avoided by rational men. In other words, if you feel like you're gonna, you want to care for somebody less than you, put it aside. It's a weakness. This is the community into which Jesus stepped. And this is the community that didn't value equality of people and didn't value care for individuals. And into that, Jesus 
told stories like this, and I use this story all the time, this passage all the time when I speak about this series. It's Matthew chapter 25. And Jesus is uh, giving a, uh, a kind of parable, a word picture of the end of time. Also, always say this every time I refer to this passage. This is something that Jesus is trying to say about the values that we should live by. If you read this at face value, it sounds like the way you get into the kingdom of God is that you save yourself by your hard work. And we know that's not true. We know we're saved by the work of Jesus on the cross, his death and resurrection. That's what makes us right with God. But Jesus is talking about the values that we should live out. And here is this picture of the Son of Man, of Jesus in front of the you know, the multitudes at a moment of judgment at the end of time. That's what this word picture that Jesus is portraying is. is. And he says this, that the king will, uh, will separate the sheep on his right from the goats on his left. And the sheep on his right are to go into his eternal glory and the goats on his left, not so much. And the sheep on his right are going to go into his, his eternal glory. And then the king says this, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Uh, the rest of you here is a slight loose translation of the rest of the passage. But essentially... That's what he says to the, the sheep on his right that are about to go in his eternal glory. And you can just imagine they're about to stroll off stage right into his eternal glory and they stop and they look back to the king. And they say to the king, we're really excited to be a sheep, not a goat. We're really excited to be going into eternal glory. This is just fantastic. Just before we go, when exactly did we see you sick or hungry or thirsty, especially needing clothes? Because we might remember, we reckon we would have remembered. And we don't remember ever seeing that. And what does the king say? I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for these people, you did for me. Don't underestimate that those words changed the world. Because the followers of Jesus... Every time they saw people in need, whether they were part of their family or not, recognise that they follow a guy that said, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. When the plagues happened, major plagues in uh, 152 AD, 251 AD, uh, 165 rather, there was 20 to 25, 20 to 30% of the whole community died. And when the plagues hit the towns, everybody ran. Anybody could get out of town ran. The pagan priests ran. Politicians ran. The wealthy that had somewhere to go ran. Guess who stayed? The people who remembered that they followed a guy that said, whatever you did for the least of these, my brethren, you did for me. That changed the world. Julian the Apostate was a guy who was kind of a grand, a sort of nephew, grand nephew of, of Constantine. Constantine decided to make the Roman Empire Christian. Julian the Apostate, as the name goes, didn't want to. And he wanted to bring the pagan religions back and he wanted to rid the world of Christians. And so he, he would say to the pagan priests, you need to get out there and start caring for people because the Christians are caring for them and they're making us look bad. And the only reason they're doing it is to make us look bad. They not only look after their own poor, embarrassingly, they look after our poor. Get out and help them. And it never happened. Two reasons. One, Julian died. That's a drawback. 
But secondly, the pagan priests didn't believe it. They didn't follow someone who believed that. Tom Holland finishes his article, which is called Why I Changed My Mind on Christianity, with these words. Today, even as the belief in God fades across the West, countries that were once collectively known as Christendom continue to bear the stamp of the two millennia old revolution that Christianity represents. I don't think Tom Holland is writing this as a Christian, and I don't think he says in his next statement that he is a Christian, but as he looks at the world, as he looks at the influence of Jesus, this is, and he looks at the Greco-Roman world and the world in which we now live and asks, how do we shift from a place where nobody cared to a place where we actually care? He says this, In my morals and ethics, I have learned to accept that I am not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. In other words, the values that I hold did not come from the Greco-Roman world. It did not come from the great philosopher kings. And it did not come from Voltaire and the Enlightenment. It actually came from the life and the teaching of Jesus. What about, I'm going to just do three, not four. What about humility? Most of us today kind of see humility as a virtue. We want to see humility and service in our leaders, don't we? In our politicians, we don't actually believe they're humble servants, but at least act like you're humble servants. You know, and we don't like arrogance, and we don't like people who kind of lord it over others. And yet, that is a very modern concept. In the, term, the time of Jesus, humility was seen as a vice, not a virtue. It was seen as a weakness of your character. To be humbled meant to be brought low. And if you were humbled, brought low, you were, that was okay in somebody greater than you. But to be humbled or brought low in front of somebody or to humble yourself in front of somebody who was weaker than you was actually seen as a kind of a, a failure of character. And into this world steps Jesus. There's a thing called a Delphi Canon. It was written several hundred years before Jesus from Delphi. It holds 147 pithy statements about what makes a great life or what makes a great Perth and all these short, almost like proverbs, that sort of short statements. In 147 statements, humility doesn't get a mention. Patrick Lencioni released a book in 2016, I think it was, and Lencioni is, a, if you know the name, he's at the Global Leadership Summit on a regular basis. He, uh, he's written numbers of books, one of them called Death by Meeting. We can all relate to that, can't we? Uh, Lencioni is, is basically a, a, a writer for the corporate world and sells thousands of books through the corporate world. So he's not a Christian writer. Patrick Lencioni uh, wrote, wrote a book called The Ideal Team Player. And The Ideal Team Player has three attributes Guess what one of those attributes are? Humility. How do we go from 147 statements about what makes a good life and humility doesn't get a mention and Lencioni does a book on leadership and one of the three is humility. I'll tell you how we get there. The person of Jesus. That's how we get there. As John Dixon says on the series, you'll hear John Dixon say this, that the, when humility starts being written about as a virtue, not a vice, the first time you see that is in the first century after Jesus. Something happened. Something happened in those moments of Jesus. 
and 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 uh, as as the the gospel writers in in uh, when Paul writes to the ch- wrote to the church at Philippi, and he's reflecting on how Jesus lived and functioned. And he's reflecting on some words that were kind of well known within the church at that time. He said, he said this, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held onto. And as a colleague of mine says, that word grasp means harpagmon, which actually means grasping something that's actually rightfully yours. You know when your daughters are having a fight over their Barbies, if daughters still have Barbies, but let's pretend that they do for the example. And, and, and one daughter has the other daughter's Barbie. And what is, what is the daughter doing? Trying to get back what is rightfully theirs. That's what that word grasp means. This is mine. I can hold it. What, what, what uh, Paul is, is referring to is a, a kind of a, a poem, a hymn, that's basically saying, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. What did he do? made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant and being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And it wasn't just that he sort of walked around being nice and humble to people. He actually took the ultimate step of going to the most degrading death that they would often do to Messiah-type figures to prove they weren't the Messiah. We're going to show how much you're not the Messiah. We're going to put you on a cross. We're going to humiliate you. We're going to beat you. You're going to die a lonely, painful, excruciating, long death to prove that you're not the Messiah. Paul says Jesus went there willingly, gave himself up. And that was the, as it were, the ultimate example of humility, which has become a virtue that we live by and a virtue that we hold on a daily basis. There's one mistake that you can make in in this series. There's probably lots, but let's just stick with one. There's one mistake that you can make, and that's to think this, to think that this morning, or as you go through the series, that, that what happened was that Jesus came to bring major sociological change, like caring for people, or humility and leadership, or that women and children are equal, or, or that we ought to care for those in hospitals and we ought to give people education, or that, that individual matters. That Jesus came to bring these major sociological change, foundational values, and that's how Jesus changed the world. You would be wrong. That's not how Jesus changed the world. How was Marx trying to change the world? How did the followers of Marx try and change the world? What did Peterson say about the followers of Marx? If you didn't give up your property, we would make you give up your property. We will oppress you. We will force our ideas onto you. We will create a society where the power of the leadership will force equality across society. The followers of Jesus were never forced. There might have been some places in history that may have happened. But if you go back to the first century, the followers of Jesus were never forced. You know how Jesus changed the world? One person at a time. One individual at a time. One life at a time turned over to Jesus and they changed the world. One of the stories we tell is the one of William Wilberforce and I tell this all the time because it's such a stunning story of this truth. We all know, most of you will know that William Wilberforce was 
in the, in the Parliament in, uh, in Westminster, in London, in the UK, and in 1807, put the, after 19 years of trying, put the, the, the uh, what do you call that thing? Something that changed slavery so you couldn't, you couldn't actually trade slaves. And then in 1833, slavery itself was banned. Interestingly, in 1833, when the Parliament passed that, Wilberforce died three days later. A, a wonderful, wonderful life committed to the importance of the individual. But where did he start? Some of you may not know that he grew up in a, outside of London, the country area, a regional area of the UK. His dad died at, when he was only nine years old. His grandfather and his dad were both uh, kind of business people and did quite well in business. Uh, but at the age of 20, he went to Cambridge University. Apparently, he didn't study a great deal. Spent a lot of time with cards and having a good time, and, uh, but seemed to do okay because at the age of 21, he, he, he became the member of Hull. So he comes to London, to Westminster, as to the Houses of Parliament, as a member for Hull at just 21 years of age. His best mate was William Pitt. William Pitt's dad at that point was the Prime Minister of the UK. William Pitt himself went on to be the Prime Minister later in his life. So he turns up at London, his best mate's the Prime Minister's son, he gets invited to all these exclusive clubs, he's a member of Parliament at 21, life is doing great. Then he, a couple of years later, he decides to go on holidays and he's doing a tour of France and Europe on his holiday. And on his holiday was his mum, I think an auntie and a couple of other family members, but, but also as a guy called Isaac Milner. Now, even people in, in Cambridge used to talk about Isaac Milner as being very intelligent. So if people in Cambridge think you're smart, you're seriously smart. And Isaac Milner, he probably had a real doctorate, actually. <laughs> and uh, so Isaac Milner was, uh, was touring France in this, this kind of grand tour with uh, William Wilberforce. And can you imagine a grand tour then? You're in a horse and carriage. You know, there's no Wi-Fi. There's, can you believe that? There's no Wi-Fi. There's no phone. There's no tablet. There's, you would actually have to, let me think, talk. There's a novel concept. So Milner and Wilberforce talked, and they debated a book about faith and Christian faith. And by the time this tour had finished, William Wilberforce goes back to London. He's now a follower of Jesus. He's come to faith. And you're probably thinking, well, he's excited now. All that great stuff has happened to him and he's a follower of Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, he goes back to London. Apparently, he was totally depressed. He was depressed because he thought he'd ruined his, he'd wasted his life. He'd wasted his education. He'd wasted his time. He's probably wasting his time in Parliament. What should he do? And he really was unsure what to do, who to talk to. So the only person he could think to talk to was John Newton. John Newton was a, a then an Anglican or Church of England priest minister in the centre of London and very well known. John Newton's background, which is why Wilberforce wanted to talk to him, was he used to run, he was a captain of a slave ship. And as a captain of a slave ship, one night in a huge storm, he, he prayed to God that if God, if he survives the storm, if God saves him, he will follow Jesus in the rest of his life. Well, he saved, he, he made it through the storm and he was kind of stuck. Um, it took him, interestingly, it took seven years before he gave up being the captain of a slave ship. But he ended up becoming an Anglican minister, became very successful and was in the centre of London. And most of you will know that he wrote, which comes out of his experience of a slave ship uh, uh, captain, he wrote the song Amazing Grace. The original one, not the one with the hipster new verse. And uh, so he, he wrote this song. And so he, he, Wilberforce is thinking, he's the guy I need to talk to. So he goes to talk to, to Newton and he says, what should I do? Should I, just, should I become a priest like you? 
And Newton says, no, you are in the right place. This is your moment. God has placed you there for this time. The whole Esther statement. Such a time as this. And it said that, that uh, the Wilberforce, and he writes this himself, left that with a new lease in life, a second chance in life. Isn't that fabulous? And he gave himself to two great outcomes in his life. One, the abolition of slavery. Two, the reformation of manners. Now, that didn't mean how to use your cutlery. It meant the morals of England, because at the time, the morals of England were appalling, just appalling. Alcoholism was rife. They say that of all the single women under 18 in London at that time, 25% of them were prostitutes. It was an awful place. He wanted to make goodness fashionable. I love that phrase, don't Goodness fashionable. We've made evil hip and cool. That's the problem with our society. And he gives himself to these great aims. Why did Wilberforce and the Clapham sect and Desire Wedgwood and Hannah Moore and John Thornton, uh, Granville Sharp, why did they give themselves to the abolition of slavery? Because our followers of Jesus. They'd given their lives into Jesus' hands. And they knew that as followers of Jesus, in almost they had no choice but to stand against what they thought stood totally against what Jesus wanted. One life at a time. And that changed the world. As you come here this morning, whether you come here every week or you're a visitor today or you, or you know, and I'm hoping that you might look through some of this series, the challenge this morning and through this series, but my challenge to you this morning is that God doesn't ask you to come in here and play church and play the game of church and kind of play the kind of Christian game. No, Jesus says, I want you to come in here because I want to change the game for you. I want you to be a different person. I want the, your life to be changed. I want to come into your life and change the game. Do you need the game changed? Is Jesus speaking to you? Because you know what? You, this community could be a very different place in a short period of time because you all become game changers. You give yourself to make sure that your street, your home, your workplace, your group of friends, your family, your school, wherever you are, you can change the game. But something has to happen in you first. And that's the message of this series. Jesus wants to change the game. So is that true for you? Do you need the game changed? Is this your moment? There'll be plenty of opportunities in the next 11 weeks, but I want to start right here, right now, and say, is God speaking to you? Because if he is, if this is your time, it would be foolish to pass it up. I want to give you the chance just by a simple prayer. And this prayer just says, God, I want to put my life into your hands. I need the game changed. I, I want to accept Jesus for me personally. I, I, I recognise that I'm far from God because of the way I'm living and I need to be brought near to God. I recognise that Jesus died on a cross, that I might be right with God. And that changed the game in history. That changed the game in society. And I want to change the game in me. Is this your chance?
Why don't you pray with me? Just if you have your, close your eyes and bow your heads, that, that just helps you concentrate. There's nothing more, more spiritual about that. It just makes it more focused. And this moment is God speaking to you. Do you need the game changed? And this is your moment. Why don't you pray these words with me? Not out aloud. This is just between you and your heavenly Father. This is your moment. Is God speaking to you and you want to respond? Why don't you pray this prayer with me? Lord Jesus, I come to you. I'm sorry for how I've lived and I'm sorry for ignoring you. I want to ask for your forgiveness. I want a fresh start. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Fill me with your spirit and give me the courage to live what I say I believe. Let me pray for all of us. Father, we come to you today, not because we've got our lives together, but because we need you. And we recognise that you have changed human history. You've changed societies. You've changed nations, but you've done them one person at a time. And Father, I pray today for each of us that we would be that person, that we would change the game in our community. Lord, I pray that this city would be a different place because you've changed the game in our hearts. Amen.